The out-of-body experience, though one of the most commonly reported anomalies, is still one such experience that many refuse to believe are real. OBE expert and experiencer William Buhlman dealt firsthand with that resistance about his own repeated childhood out-of-body experiences as he tried to explain them to his mother. Though he insisted that his experiences were real and he needed an explanation as to what they were, his mother refused to acknowledge them. This, Buhlman says, is a symptom of rigid belief or in this case non-belief, and why so many are limited in exploring their own spiritual path. Too often, spirituality is predicated on a particular belief system adopted by the individual, thereby leaving them with a narrow frequency band of possibility. For others, however, the spiritual journey may begin through a challenging scenario or an experience like an OBE or NDE, near-death experience. Buhlman has always insisted that if belief alone is the sole arbiter of the spiritual path, then we are missing the biggest part of the adventure. I spoke once again with William Buhlman to discuss his thoughts on these ideas and what he feels it takes to peel back the layers of belief in order to experience an authentic spiritual journey. William, during our last chat back in July of last year, we discussed what it takes to walk the spiritual path. And you've been steady in your conviction that those who are truly on a positive track for spiritual living are those who have elected to toss the more orthodox belief systems in favor of an individual journey, one that certainly includes but is not limited to self-initiated out-of-body experiences, that which you've been exploring, of course, for years. Today, we're going to be talking about specific individuals who have, whether voluntarily or not, managed to tap the holy grail of spirituality, even if they just touch it. You've collected many of these stories over the years of people that have done that, which will be featured in your, not upcoming book, we just learned book that just released today, Beyond the Astral, Metaphysical Short Stories. And I'm delighted that you've decided to join us once again to share some of those powerful stories. So let's start with this, which you say about the book that I just recently read. You say, Beyond the Astral is designed to open a path to unlimited possibilities by revealing the simple but sometimes powerful message found in the mysterious activities of our consciousness, end quote. Now, indeed, consciousness is mysterious to most, if not all of us, and yet everyone is trying to decipher just what consciousness is. So I'm going to ask you, how would you define consciousness? A beingness, our of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Our, our very beingness itself, our Beings. ability to perceive and uh, make decisions. Okay. Well, th that that's very lucid and very clear. You know, everyone's grappling with the question, what is consciousness? And I was just thinking, I was driving in the car today and I was saying to myself, I don't even know if the question is so much as what is consciousness, is how does it behave? You know, what we're, I think we're, what we're really grappling with is, does consciousness exist everywhere? Is, is consciousness not in some places and in uh, others? And I think the inference, of course, is that consciousness is everywhere. Would, would you agree? Yes, I would. I think consciousness uses uh, various tools to express itself. I think that's the driving force. Uh, for instance, uh, all of nature is being used as a vehicle and an expression of consciousness. Mm -hmm. From uh, the lowliest 
um, insect and animal to the to whatever you may perceive as a higher life forms. I think all life is an expression of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what makes it so fascinating, though, and so exciting because Absolutely. everybody has a different. It's, in other words, our body is a vehicle mm-hmm. uh, of consciousness that we're using it now to express our inner self and. It gives us all these opportunities to uh, to express ourselves in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. That uh, I think is just wonderful. It's it's and now in the now that we're in the modern era where we have uh, multimedia and everything, people can the average person, for instance, can really make an impact on okay. the collective. Where a uh, hundred years ago that wasn't the case. Absolutely. So maybe we can say consciousness is moving faster. Who knows? Let, let's see. Well, this isn't going to be the crux of our talk, but I wanted to open with that because you did bring up that big C word uh, in the synopsis of your book. I want to get into some of the stories of the individuals that you have that you have documented. But I want to start with this. You know, we hear so much talk these days, many cliche about our ability to tap unlimited potential, have infinite awareness. We can create the reality that we want, etc. And yet there still seems to be an embargo on these abilities for the most part, maybe, I don't know, due to our belief systems alone. But in this book, you've documented experiences that have seemingly lifted the veil on the limitations of reality in order to have a more full and gratifying experience uh, through things like OBEs, lucid dreams, exploring past lives, etc. Let me ask you this. What do you think, Bill, makes some individuals different in terms of their own spiritual journey in this regard versus the masses who seem to be stuck in the world of ordinary and mundane? Why are some people more habituated toward these experiences through these things like OBEs? I I think some people um, just break from the conventional. Um, I know that was my big decision back when I was young. I lost faith in the traditional religious path very at a very young age. I didn't find any fulfillment in it. And I began my own personal search for self-knowledge. I think it's that's the driving force. People are no longer satisfied for the mundane beliefs that, that are offered by their society. It doesn't matter what it doesn't matter where you're born. Everybody's every society and every culture has its own religious uh, norms mm-hmm. that are basically shoveled into your consciousness at a young age, whether Christian, Muslim, whatever it may be. And some people have that ability to question it and say, no, I, 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 there's something missing here. But where does that come from, Bill? I mean, let's, let's, let's take this for a minute. I mean, do you think it could be in the individual's DNA? Are they carrying over their, their curiosity from a previous life? What, what is it about some that, like yourself, where others just don't even question it? There's got to be some. I think it's a driving curiosity that some people have, and you're right. It may be, it may have originated potentially in a past life, but it it bubbles up in this life. Some point in your life, you start to question, you know, what am I? The big questions. You know, it's pretty amazing when you think that most humans have no idea where they come from and where they're going. I mean, it's it's really quite crazy. And it's only natural, I think, that questions arise like, you know, what am I doing here? Right. Uh, What is the purpose for life? Um, Especially when you realize that 
all the beliefs that people have, none of them are truly their own. That's They've right. They've all been spoon-fed by others, uh, generally at an early age. In other words, people have been programmed and indoctrinated to believe along a certain, and uh, uh, and eventually that just you just start asking questions. The big thing is cur- self curiosity of self. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to know. I wanted to know these questions. Like, where do I go when I die? I was never, even as a child, I wasn't satisfied Mm -hmm. with the uh, pat answers I got. Oh, you're going to go to heaven. I remember asking, like, well, well, then what is heaven? Where is it? How does (laughs) it work? You know what I mean? It's it's that burning curiosity to know the answers, I think, is the driving force. Mm -hmm. And I I guess we just have to accept some people have more of a of a thirst or a hunger for it where others don't i i think there are probably lots of different variables and in, in, in why one or over another would have a, a you know a deeper curiosity well, the other yeah. variable i think and one of the things that's been a uh, motivator is that people have for instance sometimes there's a, a radical event like a near-death experience well there you go yes that shakes people up now that's the other mode that occurs generally later in life though mm-hmm the questions start early on, but later in life, people have a pivotal, there's that pivotal event when people have a, and of course, the most classic one would be a near-death experience right. or a, a, a vivid out-of-body experience where you find yourself floating out of your body and you go, oh my God, mm-hmm. you know, this is real. And yeah. that's, there's a lot of different ways that occurs. Sure. Or even a, a vivid lucid dream can do that to some people. Mm-hmm. A precognition. Uh, suddenly, you know, they, they find themselves in another reality and they feel like they're fully functioning. Mm-hmm. And it makes you start asking those pivotal questions like, you know, what's the nature of reality? Are there multiple realities? So there's a lot of things that have occurred in the last, especially the last 40 years. Medical science is, is helped by just the very act of, uh, of bringing people from the brink of death. Mm-hmm. Sure. Opened, opened up a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things you wanted to do in this book is to let the reader, uh, as we're talking, have his, uh, his or her own epiphany, what, whether while we're talking or reading the book. By reading... And talking about some of the accounts of these otherwise uh, non-ordinary states of consciousness like the NDE, OBE, maybe you out there, journeyers, have had an experience or more uh, like what you will read, but for whatever reason have not chosen to pay attention until you have that trigger. So, Bill, let's get right into some of these stories that are shared in the book, including your own, which I can't wait to hear. This is the first chapter, I believe, and it's called The Boy Who Could Fly. This is about your own childhood out-of-body journeys. Give us a synopsis of your earliest recollections, if you would. Well, when I was very young, um, I was brought up in a um, very relatively strict Lutheran environment. Um, And um, I began to essentially float out of my body when I was a young boy. And I didn't know what was going on. And I would go to my mother and on multiple occasions. I still vividly remember this. And my mother was a pretty open-minded woman. I mean, it's not like she was closed-minded, but she had never heard it. You know, we're talking almost, well, almost 60 years ago because mm-hmm. I'm 68 now. And um, I would started to share that I'm floating out of my body 
and I'm starting to see things from a different perception. And it was all beyond me. I didn't understand what was going on. And I tried to get some insight from her. And I told I would tell my mother, you know, I, I'm I'm literally floating out of my body. And on a couple occasions, I floated to the wall. And I was starting to learn how to I didn't know how to function with in that state. And of course, my mother would just tell me, Oh, Willie, that's just a dream. Um, and it would continue to happen over a period of time. And before I knew it, um, you know, the, I began to get more and more, let's just say for lack of a better word, control. Mm -hmm. And before I knew it, I was able to gain, and that's what I tried to share, kind of like the learning curve that I went through during this period of time where I was like a, it's like a child learning to walk at the move out of the crib and then begin to its first steps. Right. And I, I tried to share that feeling I had and how frustrating it was trying to share these experiences. I remember even telling a childhood friend of mine, I had a good friend of mine in school at the time and I'm trying to share with him this. And even he wouldn't believe me. Um, and it's it shows the frustration we have to remember this is before the words of um, out of body even existed mm -hmm. it's this is goes quite a far back into like early well be late 50s right mm -hmm. and um, I tried to share my journey the best I could uh, with some with some uh, literary um, um, expansion to it of this learning curve I went through where I was slowly learned to control my um, astral, for lack of a better word, my non-physical or my astral body. And I would learn to go through the roof and I shared a story, which I still vividly remember. My mother asked me for um, evidence because I kept on bringing this up at in different times of the day, I would tell her. And I was, I was upset that my mother wouldn't believe me. Yeah, yeah. And which is, you know, you want your mother to believe you, of for course. God's sake, if mm -hmm. nothing else. So anyway, there was a uh, there was a ball in the gutter. I went through the roof and I could see on the roof and I could actually I told her, oh, there's there's a ball in the gutter on the roof. And I still vividly remember saying, oh, there's all kinds of junk on the roof from you kids playing. You know what I mean? <laughs> Even that didn't. Then I then I got a ladder and I went up and I got the shoulder. Oh, there, there was a ball there. But even that wasn't enough. So I tried to show the frustration I think that a lot of people have. There's a lot of children that have out-of-body experiences. Mm -hmm. I remember from doing my survey a couple decades ago, and I, I would receive thousands of children's experiences. And that always stuck in my mind, that there's, there's hundreds of thousands of children every day have out-of-body experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, you and I have talked about that. In fact, when I was preparing my lecture uh, uh, quite a few months ago, we wanted I wanted to get some information about the numbers of all you know, individuals in the United States, adult or children, and I think the number was 50,000, and maybe that's conservative, of reported uh, OBEs. Um, but the, ch the, the child factor seems to be e extremely high. Why do you think that is? What What is it about being younger that might uh, trigger out-of-body experiences more than more than older people I, I found that children uh, before puberty are very open to having 
uh, this type of experience. I think only for the very reason they haven't been programmed as much. I think it's the same reason why monks um, select young boys the age of five or so to become monks. They catch them before they've been programmed of all the physical, uh, they've, re they've, they've received that heavy physical programming. Anyway, children are open to having all kinds of non-physical well, sure. events. But, but at the uh, same time, naturally, I think. But at the same time, Bill, I, it sounds like yours is an example. That wasn't a self-initiated. That was a very spontaneous out-of-body experience. So, oh, absolutely. So, what, so, so let me see if I understand what you're saying. Just by not being indoctrinated into, let's call it, a normal reality, there's just a more of a natural affinity to put yourself in a position to naturally go into the out-of-body state. Is that what yes, you're saying? Because okay. it's a natural state. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of people don't seem to understand today. They think you're forcing something. You're not forcing anything. We're already at, I have found, and I'm not the only one who says this, there's many, many researchers and uh, that have found the same thing. You know, we spend a, a third of our lives in this altered state we call sleep. What do people think occurs at sleep? We actually do begin to separate from our biological bodies. That's how we recharge. Mm -hmm. um, and I have found that because I've observed my I've observed my wife, I've observed animals, I've observed other people. When we sleep, we have a natural tendency to move out of phase with our body. It doesn't mean we're floating at the ceiling, but we're out of phase. We're like three, four. Most most people are like it appears to be. Um, like three inches out of phase. In other words, your non-physical body is floating out of phase of your physical. And that's when the charging occurs, and that's when you're dreaming. But uh, science doesn't acknowledge that. It's all they acknowledge is REM. Of course. Uh, you, you know, REM periods. Because you can't, there's no way to visually uh, um, do a video, and uh, at least currently, to my knowledge, there's no way, unfortunately, to videotape the astral body effectively, mm -hmm. even though many people have tried. Curlian photography, I think, it has attempted to to capture at least the the auric field yes, around the body. Some of the but, aura effects, yes. But this is a natural. People forget this is just a natural. We we end up experiencing our ourselves. It's an aspect of us. That's what people seem to. People are so fixated on their biological body as them. That's the core issue here. Mm -hmm. When the reverse is true, mm -hmm. you know, when when we die, the only thing we're taking with us is our as our state of consciousness. Consciousness. There we go again. Right. Yeah. We're back to that magical term. If consciousness is the only thing that's real, because it's the only thing that's lasting. Right. All the stuff around us is a passing facade. Right. Everything. It's all going to be dust. And when we 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 leave and we're all going, we all have we're all on the same journey. We're all on a journey beyond the body. And it's wouldn't it be wise to learn about the journey you're on? I mean, that's to me is what always blows my mind. It's like million billions of people are like ostriches with their head in the, <laughs> in the sand. Oh, I, I don't want to think about that. It's crazy. Don't, I want to know what goes on. I want to know what happens. It's crazy not to know where you're going to where your true home is. Mm.
Well, you I know mean, what I've 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 learned over the years, Bill, that uh, it is crazy. It, you know, particularly for those who have a natural, uh, they're naturally inquisitive to want to, to know answers to these big questions. And I say maybe we'll never fully know, but that should not hinder our or inhibit our ability to look. Uh, but I have learned over the years to say for the people that aren't interested, well, you know what let them live the lives that they need to live. And the, the hopefully one day they will get some answers even without looking for them. I don't know. So I let those be on their own course. And those of us that are, uh, that are uh, poised to, to explore further, let us do so with, uh, with more of a depth and, and, uh, and learn what we can. Let's talk about this. Cause I want to, I want to touch on a few of the stories because so many of them look so fascinating and so inspirational. Yeah, let's talk about some uh, what would be considered a less serious view of what we call reincarnation. And this is about soulmates planning a future life while in the, I would assume, in-between life state. Do you recall what I'm talking about? Yeah. And I know that you wrote this book with your wife, lovely wife, Susan. I don't know if she wrote this particular story or not or, or uh, documented it. But can you talk about that? A less serious yes, view of reincarnation. Uh, Soul Sisters is a great story. It's about people making, they meet and they make a plan for their future incarnation. And they sit around essentially having drinks okay. while they're deciding. It's like a kind of like a restaurant or a meeting space. Okay. And um, they get together and they begin to plan their next journey together into the physical world. And it's a very lighthearted. A lot of the stories are, um, it's a mix, but some of the stories are quite funny actually. Hmm. And um, one of them is actually quite hilarious um, with the, the uh, infants that are speaking to one another. But <laughs> in Soul Sisters, it's a very lighthearted, um, I think it's a lighthearted, but very, it conveys a lot of really profound information in a way that I think people can relate to. Of just two people sitting together planning um, their future life together on on earth and what the potential might be and what the roles may be Where what would be the entrance point for instance? What parents would you pick and then and they both have to coordinate the parents? Are they going to be siblings? There's a lot of pre-planning decisions that are made. We take this for granted. Most people never think about this of course Yeah, but all of us made a certain degree of serious pre-planning before we come here. Right. For one thing, we selected our parents. You're really uh, sure of that? nobody has a gun to your head forcing anybody to incarnate, I think that's important. Do you, I, but I need to ask you this. Do you really, let's, I, I want to make this a sticking point for a minute, because this has been said before, that we choose the lives that we have. We choose our parents. We choose perhaps every yes. aspect. I'm just going to, I don't know. I'm going to say I'm on the fence about that. I don't know. I, I certainly think that we do have skin in the game. I like to say that all the time. You really, really feel, what? why do you think that is, that we choose because you know. how else could it be? Who else would choose? If, if, if there is an external force choosing, then that would be very disempowering to our entire evolutionary cycle. Mm -hmm. so think of it. I mean, um, it has to be the individual soul making the selection or not making the selection, I feel, or it would not be, um, it would be, it would become a very um, corrupted system 
where someone is forcing you to do something against your will. And I, well, I don't sure. see the evidence of that. Right. Now, that's... Uh, now uh, granted, now, I, I know what you mean. My, yeah. A lot of us have just parents that are not, let's just say, less than ideal, for lack of getting to too much That's not detail. even really what I mean, though. That, that, but no, I, I, my point a lesson is that yeah. the people, I, I think that self-determination is one of the keynotes of of uh, of an evolving soul. Mm-hmm. If we don't have self determination, well, let's face, it, don't we have it through our entire life? We make we millions of decisions that determines the outcome of our life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And would that change just because you're not in a body? Right, right. I don't think that's a logical conclusion. Uh, granted, it's a tough decision. And there's now I'm not saying that I'm not saying there's there's this predetermination. I'm saying that people select the parents and then all hell breaks loose because no one going to no one knows for sure whether those parents are going to be a good couple or a good parents or mm-hmm. follow me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're you're making that basic call that oh I'll, I'll take I'll pick these parents yeah. for whatever reason maybe it's karmic because of pay other connections it's a complicated event but I, I want to be clear to the audience I'm not saying that it means that we are determining the outcome of that life it's far from that uh, it's all you're determining is the birth point. Mm-hmm. And then from then, anything can happen. Some say that we're, uh, let's say we do, let's say that the process is that we are choosing all aspects of our life. We choose to be, come in with a debilitating disease or, you know, uh, blind or, you know, crappy parents. That it, it's not about uh, the choice to, to live a horrible life, but just to experience what it feels to suffer and maybe even come back from that uh, very challenging state. So it's just an interesting, I just thought I'd explore that with you. That's all. We don't know uh, for sure. No, and you know, I, the other, the other thing, I just want to make this quick point. The other thing is some feel that uh, the choices that we're making are more agreements in, in a group setting. Let's say that there are a group of uh, discarnate yes. uh, uh, souls that are kind of sitting around like these two women, I suppose, which I love. I, that's a really neat thing where they sat around having drinks talking planning their next life so maybe it's an agreement among several people oh yes definitely it's agreement from between many people mm-hmm. um so i think that the key thing here that's often lacking from this discussion is the idea that we're immortal people are so obsessed with their sing this single life which is true that's the way it should be i mean this is what we're here to do let's do it but the point is um, we have been around for a long time and there's a lot more going on. In other words, each life is like a paragraph in a book. It's not the book itself. And I think people lose track of that when they say, oh, I was, I, I hear it all the time. My parents were awful. They created all these issues for me. Yes, but they also created opportunities that now you have things to work on and overcome. Um, so there's there's pluses, you know. There's always an opportunity for growth in every, let's just say, challenging situation. You know, that's why is there wars? 
as crazy as it sounds to people, and people don't like to hear this, there must be an, a benefit somehow from the very nature of conflict. There is a mm. learning opportunity. Yes, it's a harsh learning opportunity, but it gets back to the fact that we're immortal. And the history of humanity is a history of wars. So there, there's obviously, these are dramatic learning opportunities. And people don't like to hear that because they think that the world should be sugar and spice and everything nice. Mm. But that's not the, what the physical world is designed for. People forget we live in a multidimensional continuum of potentially millions of realities. The physical world is, is not designed to be the sugar and spice place. We have these opportunities to experience more pristine realities um, when we die. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's these learning, there's a learning curve to be, and learning opportunities that we confront when we enter the physical. It's a, it's a tough training ground. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you have to look at it from a wider perception, as I think is what I'm saying. I agree. I absolutely agree. Well, my next question is, it seems that so many of the, the, the gifts that people receive, spiritual gifts, come through tragedy. You, you've touched on this before, in fact, earlier in this conversation. Do you think it has to be that way? Or again, is this just par for the course, the way this reality is designed? I don't I have to is, uh, I wouldn't call it have to. I think there's, there's choices that we make when we even choose our parents. Um, and in those choices, we know, to some extent, that there's going to be challenges inherent when two people get together based on their history mm -hmm. and their track record, which um, some people you should, at least to some extent, have some knowledge of that when you're pre-planning sessions. Now, granted, it's not extensive, but there'll be some. And I think that um, there's the nature of this reality makes it a let's just say a harsher training ground than many of the realities that exist on the astral um, and in other realities beyond the astral and it's 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 kind of baked into a certain degree you know what's the biggest problem facing humanity today it's 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 not all everybody's so fixated on poverty and discrimination and these that's not the big problem the big problem is lack of knowledge of self i was just going to say that not People knowing thyself know what they are they don't know where they come from and they don't know where they're going so of course they're going to do ignorant stupid stuff they're mm -hmm. acting out of ignorance of self yeah i'm not the first person to have said this I, I and this is the core issue that needs to be addressed this is why the exploration of consciousness is so critically important for all of us mm -hmm. to learn to become explorers of our inner self to some degree through whatever path you choose. Right. Uh, you know, shamanism, yoga, uh, whatever. You know, there's multiple paths available that people are pursuing. And it's so important nowadays to learn about what you are and where you're going. So that you you don't have to go through 
the, the all the terrible stuff that is occurring on earth today mm-hmm. you can choose once you know what you are and where you're headed and what you truly are you can you it's like that you have this giant beacon lighting the way and you can see beyond the uh, pitfalls that many people fall into the the ego created pitfalls is what I'm referring to because all pitfalls are self-created and you're no longer a victim most people walk around with some kind of victimhood wrapped around them. Mm-hmm. They take the cloak of victimhood, whether it be the government did it to me, the church did it to me, my parents did it to me. Look what they're all doing. They're wrapping their, their consciousness in victimhood. That's a very negative, self-defeating state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Instead, let's take that energy and and become explorers of self explorers i love that word and you've said that so many times and i agree with you wholeheartedly let's i I also like to say let's investigate the mystery let's explore and investigate the mystery you know in that regard bill you say in this book and you said before we tend to take our spiritual journey too seriously and it seems it's because there is so much pressure to adhere to certain uh, taught principles, too many manuals or too many guidelines. So let me ask you, how do you feel about what I like to call the improvisational journey? Making things up. Let's say it's meditation. I don't want to do TM. I'm one of those people that was trained in transcendental meditation at 13. And even as a kid, I thought to myself, I'm tossing the mantra. There's another way of doing it. And I started on an improvisational journey. Self-discovery once again. I think I know what your answer would be, but t- talk about that a little bit. What about the improvisational spiritual journey? Oh, I think it has to be. It has to come from within us. I think that's so important um, that we don't get... The problem with looking outside of us is that we end up being the result of others. We end up being guided and directed and manipulated by others. I don't care who it is. Mm-hmm. That's why I think it's... You have to be discerning in everything you read absolutely, and everything that you allow in your state of consciousness. You have to be discerning about who you surround yourself with. Uh, all of these things are important because the, uh, the journey that you're speaking of is a self-directed inner journey. And that's what it's all about. That's what I love about out-of-body experiences. That it couldn't get more individualized. Mm-hmm. Like- you, no one is telling you what to do, what to think, and where to go. It's all up to you, and there's a lot of self-responsibility. You are totally responsible for your journey of consciousness when you have an out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. There's no one that's going to walk up to you and be your guide. No, you don't think their guides are, you don't think that guides aren't present in some cases? I think there are guides present, but a a good guide is not going to interfere with your journey of consciousness. I say this all the time. They are present and more likely there's they stay on the sidelines out of vision. That's what I have found in mine. I, I occasionally I when you can request and I have done so, you can make the request to communicate and to even perceive your guide. Mm-hmm. But in general, a good spiritual guide is never going to interfere with your journey because they are the the prime directive is self evolution through self exploration that's the prime directive 
Absolutely. Of all spiritual guides, because it must be self-directed. Otherwise, you end up being the pawn of someone. That's the problem with religions. Mm-hmm. And uh, these, uh, these, these, these people that identify, and, and that's a problem with labels today. The biggest, one of the issues now that we're starting to get again, unfortunately, into this crazy political season, everybody's wrapping themselves in labels. <laughs> My God, could it be any more negative? You are just, you you know, no one is a Democrat or Republican. We're souls trying to discover what we are, for God's sake. Give up, give up all of these roles. Give up all of this labels. They're all, labels are nothing but limiting. Agreed. All labels limit yeah. us. Mm-hmm. I don't care what kind of limit. And you see it all the time when people declare themselves to be a Baptist or I'm a Buddhist what do you just what did you just do? You just put yourself in a box created by someone else. Your Buddha Buddha created a box. It's called Buddhism, essentially, and his followers. I was gonna say the followers probably the more followers so than Buddha, did, Buddha himself. More than it, just like all religions. Mm-hmm. And it's not a you just have to be careful not to fall into a box that limit us. That's why I think it's so important to be a free thinker and not be a part of, I'm not a member of any organization. I'm not a member of any group. I'm really not. Mm -hmm. I'm a guest trainer at the Monroe Institute, but I'm a guest trainer. I've never been trained by Bob Monroe Mm -hmm. to be a a facilitator. Most people don't even know that. They assume I I am. No, I never did and I never would because that's another box. and people want to be, people feel comfortable when they're part of an organization, they do. They're part of a collective. Yeah. I never felt that way. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be part of any collective. It's bad enough that I have to say I'm right now part of the human race. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, at the age of 68, that won't last long. So my point is that I'm not even that. Yeah. I know I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a biological human. I exist beyond my body. Yeah. And when I when I transition, I don't need this humanoid form because I know it's a temporary vehicle of consciousness. Mm-hmm. But most people don't understand that. Most people don't. Well, again, we're going back to indoctrination and programming. And I have to tell you, this is why you and I have been friends for so long, Bill, because I'm one of those proud card-carrying members of the I don't join a group club. <laughs> I don't. I, I, you know, throughout childhood, I suppose, and adolescence and teenage years, there was I would dip in and out, but not really. I have never had a need nor an affinity for group joining, sor- pledging a sorority in college, going to workshops and lectures. I, you know, and I say it all the time. It's not necessary. I think you undermine uh, your own ability to travel a, a sovereign, a true sovereign journey, and really explore. But I say that. I'll also put on the record for those that feel that it's enhancing, and in some ways, maybe it can be. Go for it. But I too, I, that's just my preference. I've never been a group joiner. Yeah, ever. and it's an individual thing. It's an I individual mean, thing. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm just saying that's my way of doing it. Right. That's. But I'm not saying it's for everybody. It's obviously not. Yeah. People need to have a support. Most people need to have some kind of collective support system uh, to for their journey. It appears. Mm-hmm. I've never needed that. Maybe it's because I was an only child brought up with an 
and only, with only my mother, and I was brought up by myself, and I, w- I learned to be self-support. Maybe that had something to there do with it. There you go. It. I didn't know you were an only child. Well, guess what? Guess who else is? Me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Maybe something There's something there, I think, po- I think quite possibly. You know, I, I, I just realized that I, I learned at a very young age that it's up to me to do do stuff on my own, mm-hmm. to, to entertain myself, to do my own journey, to make my own decisions. Right. And mm-hmm. um, I think looking back, that probably helped me. Sure, sure. Being um, uh, an only child of, of um, my father left when we were five. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was, so, but the point is that it, it wasn't a negative, it was a positive um, for me to be able to be self-sufficient. I learned at a very young age to be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And I learned that I don't need to be d- depend on, um, I don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. I learned to be self-sufficient in as many ways as possible. It's interesting that in the beginning of the conversation, I asked you, what is it that makes certain individuals have more of a proclivity for exploration than others? And we came up with a few ideas, but I think you've just given me some insight, Bill, as to you having the the benefit of alone time understanding the 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 power and solitude even at a very young age kind of put you in the position to and and have the time and the space to ask those questions and to and to be able to ponder some of the things that you were being told and didn't feel were quite right being an only child and i can relate to that i learned something new about you today <laughs> that's yeah, really think, um I, there's a lot of little things i think that affect our journey yeah. um and I, I, but mostly it's curiosity. Mm-hmm. Some people just have this burning need to know sure. the answers, and they're willing to take the risks. They're willing to step out of their comfort zone. That's a big deal to step out of the comfort zone. Many people don't have that. I've I've noticed over the decades. Mm-hmm. They they they'll they'll, they'll read a book about something that's out of the comfort zone. And that's about the extent of it. Right. Mm-hmm. They they're not going to leave their church, and start becoming uh, and start taking up inner exploration, because it's not comfortable for them. Uh, and that's it's that inner driving force that you can't put your finger on, that is so important. Hmm. Wow. I think you're right. Big deal there. Listen, I wanted, I want you to tell us maybe another story, if you can, from the book or elaborate on one. And I hope you can, this is fresh, you know, right out, right off the presses. So hopefully you have a recollection of all, all that you wrote. <laughs> there is one yeah, chapter. Yeah, I sure do. <laughs> Good. There is one chapter in your book about a man who was the sole survivor in a fatal car accident. Can you talk about what he went through in terms of his guilt uh, and the revelations that he had while experimenting with out-of-body experiences? And and this had to do with understanding the afterlife state. Yeah, it was, this was a, um, this was really, some of these stories are quite moving. Um, This was about, we talked about earlier about how our near-death experience can shift us into a different state. And really be life-changing the same this is about an accident how it affects um, I was involved in a serious car accident hmm. when I was a teenager and um, not now this story of course is a fictional oh. but uh, in many ways but it's it's based on the fact that um, a life-changing event 
like a car accident can have a, a major shift in your state of consciousness because you start to question everything, especially if it leads to a, um, a profound experience like a near-death experience. And what I wanted to get across was the idea that uh, for us to embrace these, in other words, a car accident's a hideous event, but yet it can lead, many of these hideous events, cancer's another one, I'm, we've talked about this, mm -hmm. uh, cancer is another one. Um, any kind of life-threatening event in our lives is often a pivotal moment where we have to really look at ourselves deeply and make a shift. And these are the these are the those moments in our lives I feel that are critically important to our personal development, whether it be a car accident, or um, a life-threatening illness, or or a child dying, or a loved one dying of any kind, which we all are going to confront these kind of things. Um, our parents are going to die, and we have to confront it. So we're, no one's. Uh, no one's immune from these type of events. And it's more about what can we learn from these traumatic events? How can we take this terrible event and turn it into a positive? And that's what this story really is about. Mm -hmm. Learning from our um, trauma to the point that we have a breakthrough and, and really gain something, this inner knowledge of ourselves. I think this is really an important lesson. In other words, don't dwell on the negative aspects. That's kind of the underlying lesson. Right. Don't dwell on the people have a tendency to totally dwell on the loss. Well, sure, of course. And or and which is I understand that uh, I've I've suffered loss uh, as well. But there's there's look deeper is all I was trying to say here. Dig a little deeper. What did we gain? What did we? There's something gained in everything. There's a lesson learned. And we have a tendency sometimes to go through life and not look at the lesson learned and to, and to, to take, uh, give, give ourselves credit for what we've gained from the experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was really the purpose of the story. Okay, great. That sounds like a profound one. And, and how many stories are in the book, by the way? Do you know offhand? Uh, 13 different stories. Yeah, 13, the covering of wide variety um, of subjects. One of them is interview with a guide, uh, which is in, really, I thought, was an interesting story about a non-physical reporter on the astral mm. who gets an opportunity to actually interview a higher vibrational guide. Hmm. And um, that that was it's it's just a different take on what I tried to do is expand some of these stories beyond the physical mm -hmm. and give us a little insight into non-physical reality. Right. Um, and uh, insights that could be gained from these uh, stories. Mm -hmm. I think each story is an opportunity to take away something. Sure. Uh, sure. That's significant and to learn from it. Basically, there's, it's a way to teach metaphysics in a fun way. Mm -hmm. So are all of these stories fiction or some are a mix or? There, it's a mix. It's a mix. Okay, right. It's Let's... a mix, yeah. Some of them are 
Uh, all of them are based on actual out-of-body okay. experiences, and huh. but there, uh, some of them are more fictionalized than others. Mm-hmm. Um, like the interview with an astral guide. Yeah, um, that was a little of both, really. But the point is, that, yes, they're they're fictionized stories based on actual um, out-of-body experiences, lucid dreams. And also some near-death experiences that have been shared with us over the years. Mm, beautiful. And it's out today. Congratulations. Now tell us about it. It's out today. Uh, the Kindle version uh, is out. The paper edition will follow in about two weeks. Okay. It was an odd launch. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never seen this happen before. That's okay. It's still going to do well. Um, it's gonna, it's so still going to The Kindle is, the, yeah, the Kindle is available uh, now okay, great. and um, and I plan on at some point having an audible. Sounds good. Uh, I don't know when. I've been too busy to even think about that, but I'm getting tremendous requests for that. Oh, so. great! Wonderful. And I'm already um, sent it. My uh, there'll be a German version and a Romanian. There'll be multiple language versions. I love it. Available. Uh, probably early next year. I love it. That, you know, that is such a, that is to me the ultimate thumbs up that what you're talking about and the subjects that we're talking about, Bill, are resonating, it seems, on a broader scale. More people are hungering for this information. They really are. And that's, that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. Your book is Beyond the Astral Metaphysical Short Stories, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. I, I got a sneak peek, but I want to read the whole thing because the stories sound great. So thank you for sharing it with us so much and always enjoy having you. Well, listen, I want to remind the journeyers if you enjoyed this episode and particularly if you know someone that might resonate from some of what you heard today, I urge you to like and share this content with your circle of friends and family. Maybe you you or someone you know will have their own spiritual epiphany while listening to this great chat or reading the book. So please share and spread the word. And of course, if you enjoy Higher Journeys, I invite you to subscribe to our channel for brand new episodes each and every week. So thank you so much. And thank you, Mr. William Buhlman. Always a pleasure to have you on. Always a pleasure to chat and chat and chat. And we'll continue after we get off the air too. (laughs) So thanks, my friend. Hey, thank you.